Hello and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Vicki Mazzone. This program takes a look at the politics and all that we experience in life, from exploring what makes us happy, to civil rights and environmental issues, to family dynamics, politics impact our daily lives. On today's show, M.L. Laurie further explores the idea of ingrained ways of thinking and what it means to pursue happiness. Kristen Thiel presents two activists from Mexico, one from the early 20th century and one from the early 21st century. But first, a conversation with researcher and expert Kate Lavender on the famous Lizzie Borden trial of 1892. Lizzie Borden was arrested as a suspect in the axe murders of her father and stepmother in Fall River, Massachusetts. And even though Lizzie was acquitted at the trial, it was always believed that she committed the murders. Kate Lavender is a screenwriter, documentary maker, and podcaster. She is researching the Lizzie Borden case and hopes to create a documentary of the trial. Kate has read all 3,000 pages of the trial transcripts. You've done a lot of research on the Lizzie Borden trial. Uh, Lizzie Borden, the famous trial of 1892-1893 in Fall River, Massachusetts, where she hacked her stepmother and her father to death. What was it about this case, because so much has been written about it, so much has been covered and, and not covered, what was it about this case that drew your attention? Well, I love anything that has to do with spinsters. I love unsolved cold cases. And this trial had something for everyone. It is a delicious piece of Americana at a time in our history where law, medicine, and forensics intersected in the late 1890s. Um, And because it's not solved, I thought if I read enough about it and studied it, I might be able to figure out what really happened. So you've read all of the 3,000 pages of the trial transcripts. What sort of things did you find out and what do you think people might be surprised about? There's so many great things that come out of this trial that um, people would might be surprised to, to know. Well, one of the things is that the autopsy showed that Abby Borden had been dead for 90 minutes before Andrew died. So that makes you wonder if there was an intruder that came in and found her upstairs in the guest room, committed this brutal murder of cutting her with a hatchet for like 19 blows, and then hid somewhere where the maid and Lizzie didn't see him, waiting for Andrew to walk in so he could kill him. So Andrew was her father, and... Abby was the stepmother. The stepmother. And so you think that while the stepmother was being killed first... Somebody would have heard the commotion. Somebody would have come to investigate. Somebody would have had... Yeah. There would have been some kind of discovery of this thing. Yes. And they did try to introduce Stranger Theory based on the fact that the Jack the Ripper killings just two years before that had so much publicity. They thought some crazed man was out there running around. I think that's what they were planning on, that she couldn't have possibly done it. This little delicate woman... Because back then it was different. Women didn't vote yet. Uh, We didn't have a lot of rights. But apparently the Borden sisters, um, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, they did not realize that 
their parents had been buried without their heads until they were already in the courtroom and that was revealed to them. And you can imagine what that must have been like. Why didn't they bury their parents with their heads? They wanted to do some forensic studies on them, so they had to boil off the hair and the skin, and it was kind of gruesome. I I feel so bad for, for Dr. Dolan, who was the... Um, he, he was the doctor there, the medical examiner that had to do that. When you look at those pictures of the skulls and you see the giant holes in the heads, uh, it, it kind of really makes you think differently about whoever did that. Some people think Lizzie did it. Some people don't think she did it. That's what's so fun about this case is that everybody has their own opinion. Lizzie herself only testified once during the trial and also, what is the inquest testimony? Is that is that her testimony? That's her testimony, and it's also some of the other witnesses that were there during that first week or so, or actually the first 48 to 72 hours. There was quite a few people being interviewed. The inquest comes from the coroner's inquest, and it was a really fascinating character study. It revealed a lot about... What happened that day, I felt that the district attorney did a really good job of interviewing her. And if you're reading into it and you're looking for her subtext and her character and her behavior, that's the only time you can really study Lizzie herself. And I knew I had to record that and make that available to other people. It's just so fascinating to hear her. She's an intriguing woman. So, and yeah. what you've done uh, to make the transcripts come alive is you've chosen parts of the transcripts to be reenacted by actors. Uh, well, how do you choose which ones and how do you get the actors for their speaking parts? Well, I do the research first and I read it from the point of view of a screenwriter. And because some of this testimony is so compelling and is so fascinating and dramatic that I can look at it and say, this would make a great scene. And I know that what actors would be great for this. And I'm really lucky because I found a fabulous Lizzie uh, and a fabulous uh, district attorney. And they're right here in Portland. And I found them through Facebook. And I did not know anything about Facebook or how to use it. I was brand new to it. I had to get involved with social media just so that I could, you know, get out there, get my name out there and, and have people know what I was doing. So you have a, a history of podcasting and documentaries and screenwriting. Your goal is to visit Fall River, Massachusetts, where the Bordens lived and where the murders happened. Your plan is you are raising money to go to Fall River, look at the site. And so what is your plan once you get there? Is there a documentary in the works? Yes, to all of that, I am definitely trying to get there. I've never been there, and I don't want to be the only Lizzie Borden podcaster slash writer, documentary maker that's never actually been there. But I, but I think I would be so much better uh, at really deciphering this 
enormous trial and its implications in history. If I could study there at the Historical Society, they have a huge collection of Lizzie Borden primary source documents that relate to the trial, all kinds of paraphernalia that relate to the trial, all, a lot of experts. I could, you know, stay at the house and ask questions. And So that's the plan. Go up there, mm-hmm. do all the research, actually see the site, uh, work with the Historical Society, and then would you take a camera up there too? Oh, yeah, I would take my camera. And uh, just like I have been doing, I'd film everything that I could, you know, maybe even catch a spirit or two. That would be fun. Well, you know, New England's full of ghosts. You never know. That's what I hear. Yeah. (laughs) We're also going to have links to some of the trial transcripts that you've reenacted. Where can people go to find out more information? Well, people can find me on Facebook. Uh, Of course, Kate Lavender. Uh, I'm sure we put Lizzie Borden, my name would come right up. The GoFundMe account is GoFundMe.com. Send me to Fall River. I'm trying to get about $2,000 or so, you know, for my airfare to stay there for a week. I see myself as getting up early and doing all the things I have to do to get capture moments and take notes and educate myself and learn more about it. What do you think at this point? Do you think Lizzie did it or you're just not sure? I really do think she did it, but... And from what I can tell by reading the transcripts, it was a conspiracy between her and her older sister and the maid. And I know there's lots of things that make it look like they they didn't have it that way, but there were so many coincidences that just happened to happen. Like, for example, they did it on the day when the, all the officers were at the Rocky Point Clambake and only 10% of the police force was on duty that day. You know, lots of little coincidences that I'm pretty sure that she did that. What was the reason behind the crime? Why were the Bordens killed? The sisters were really afraid they were going to be disinherited if for some reason the Andrew Borden died first. All the property and the money would go to the stepmother, and they were not on good terms with the stepmother. So I think they thought they would be disinherited, and they would only receive a small amount of money to live on, and they didn't want to take that chance. This is fascinating, and let us know what you find out. Thank you so much for having me, and I know once I'm finished, Kabu is going to let me have a, a big listening party here, and everybody can come and listen to it, and if they want to donate 5 or $10, that would be great, um, and hopefully they can leave with something. Um, I'm not quite sure if they're going to live leave with a CD or digital download. That's what I'm working on so that I can get this done. I know people are anxious to hear it. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. You can find out more about Kate Lavender's research by going to Kate's Facebook page at facebook.com slash lavender 11 Lavender is spelled L-A-V-E-N-D-E-R. And the GoFundMe site is GoFundMe.com slash SendMeToFallRiver. Next up, The She-Ra Solution. It is a monthly biography of women past and present. Its title is inspired by Maria Teresa Hart's article, She-Ra and the Fight Against the Token Girl, published by The Atlantic. In today's segment, Kristen talks about two women from Mexico, First, a woman from the early 20th century who took to the streets and the airwaves to organize for women and children's civil rights. 
The other woman is a modern day Mexican. She's both a scientist and a politician, and she's just become the first elected female mayor in Mexico. I took a quick look at some population figures, and at least as far back as 1950, Mexico has been majority female. A slim majority, but a majority nonetheless. Yet it took till 2018 for a woman to be elected mayor of the country's biggest city, Mexico City, also of course one of the world's largest metropolises, at almost 9 million people. Claudia Scheinbaum Pardo won the mayoral election by more than a sliver. She earned nearly 50% of the vote, within a field of seven candidates. Polls conducted close to the election indicated that none of her opponents would individually earn even 20% of the vote. She will take office December 1st. A woman has led the city once before. Rosario Robles was mayor from 1999 to 2000. But Scheinbaum Pardo will be the first one who was elected by the people. Robles, you see, took power because her predecessor resigned. After spending four years at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California, Scheinbaum Pardo worked as a scientist and environmentalist in Mexico. Her mother, too, was a scientist, a chemist. Until her mayoral campaign, Scheinbaum Pardo was an environmental engineer at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. She considers this education and her work experience key to her success in politics in Mexico City. For one thing, some of the city's largest problems are environmental. For example, the city is susceptible to earthquakes, and it's sinking. For another thing, Scheinbaum Pardo sees her adherence to the scientific method as quite applicable to politics. She told Science Mag, quote, Training in physics makes you always look for the root causes. Why is something happening? That's fundamental for politics. And then engineering is much more focused on the how. How can I solve it? Scheinbaum Pardo ran for office with some concrete solutions. Mexico City's Spanish colonizers drained the lake on which the city now sits, and most of its water is pumped from the lake bed, from beneath the city. That's what's causing it to sink, and that's in large part what's leading to earthquakes. Scheinbaum Pardo suggests overhauling the distribution network, which will help prevent leaks, building water recycling treatment plants, subsidizing rainwater collection systems. Mexico City also has an environmental issue above ground. 70% of the city's greenhouse gas emissions come from vehicles. Scheinbaum Pardo wants a public transportation system worthy of such an important city and stricter emission standards for privately owned vehicles. Scheinbaum Pardo sees this work as benefiting not just the planet, but also its people. She aims to reduce inequality in access and services. These goals stem from her decades of left-wing politics and activism. As a student in the 1980s, she helped start the first left-wing opposition party, Partido de la Revolución Democrática. Most recently, she was an early convert to the leftist party named Morena, which started in 2014. Scheinbaum Pardo is also Mexico City's first Jewish mayor. Her grandparents emigrated from Lithuania and Bulgaria. 40,000 Jews live in Mexico. More than 3,000 women ran in local and national elections in Mexico this year. Such a noticeable thing that people started calling the 2018 election season El Año de la Mujer, the Year of the Woman.
Scheinbaum Pardo's work, from her days as an activist student, through her careers in environmental science and politics, has been all about civil rights, justice, progress. She follows in the footsteps of many like-minded and like-acting women, one of them being Maria Rebecca Latigo de Hernandez, whose 122nd birthday was celebrated with a Google Doodle in July of this year. Hernandez was born in Garza Garcia, near Monterrey, Mexico, but she made her life's contributions as an immigrant in San Antonio, Texas. Hernandez quickly realized that women and children of Mexican heritage were disproportionately negatively affected by economic discrimination and segregation in schools in the area. She co-founded Orden Caballeros de America, Order of the Knights of America, which was a resource for Mexican-Americans to learn about their rights. She helped form the Asociación Protectora de Madres, the Association for the Protection of Mothers, which provided financial aid to pregnant women. And she formed La Liga de Defensa Pro Escolar, the School Defense League, which fought to racially integrate schools. Though Hernandez focused on elevating fellow Mexican-American immigrants, her work clearly transcended support for just one people. It served all who were politically, socially, economically depressed, oppressed. Hernandez did not just take to the streets to organize. She also took to the airwaves. One of the many reasons I like her. On the Voz de las Americas radio program, she promoted the League of United Latin American Citizens, a Latino civil rights organization. Doing so made her San Antonio's first Mexican-American female radio announcer in 1932. I'm your host, Kristen Thiel, and I'll be back next month. Contributor M.L. Laurie explores the idea of happiness and how we can change our thinking. In this month's installment of Let's Stop for a Minute, here's M.L. Laurie. So let's stop for a minute. Let's think about this. Previously, I presented that it is reality that each human being, aside from their genetic physical makeup, is only different due to the software programs or learned ways of thinking they are taught. I presented an example of an easy-to-see faulty software program. This software program was the faulty way of thinking that believes that each member of any group of people can all be seen as the same, whether the group is based on their religion, race, sex, place of birth, or any criteria. The incorrectness of this thinking is evident if for no other reason than each of us have our own individual mind, have been taught different software programs or ways to think, and have our unique experience with whatever environment we have been exposed to, no matter what group we can be lumped into. So to lump any group of people together and say they are the same is a logical and a faulty way of thinking. It has no basis in reality. This includes the faulty idea that if you don't like someone from a particular race, religion, or some group, that it is valid to think that each person who belongs to that group is the same as the one you don't like, and therefore you are justified in not liking anyone who belongs to that particular group. This is not a valid way of thinking. These are definite examples of faulty software programs. In the last reflection, I left you with two important questions. Is it possible to let go of, change, or unlearn the software programs that cause you to be unhappy? And the bottom line, do you want to be happy? 
Let's stop for a minute and think about all of this. Do you think that everyone wants to be happy? What is happiness? What causes you to feel happy? Is it possible to have a stable sense or feeling of happiness? Why do you think people make the choices they make in their lives? Every choice we human beings make is based on our desire to be happy. I say every because even if it is illegal and sometimes hurtful, the end game is to be happy, whether that is getting the money we need to get what we think will make us happy or simply allowing someone in our life that may not be supportive, even unkind, because somehow we think having them in our lives will make us more happy. If you talk to people about their choices, you will find somehow they are making the choices they are to be more happy. This is reality. We are on a constant search outside of ourselves for happiness, whether that is through different people, objects like cars and clothes, trying to be successful in some way, or approval, acceptance, or love from someone. So how does this relate to our software programs? If you have a software program that causes you to feel unhappy, do you want to keep it? We cannot exactly unlearn what we have been taught, but we can let go of, and thereby change, faulty programs, especially the ones that cause us to experience unhappiness or some unpleasant feeling. If we all are constantly making choices that will help us be happy, then why would someone hold on to a software program, a way of thinking that causes them to feel sad, anxious, frustrated, angry, or any emotion that prevents a sense or feeling of being happy? So the question is, do you want to be happy, and if so, what are you willing to do to get rid of the software programs, your learned ways of thinking, that interfere with your happiness? Again, do you think it's possible to let go of or change an unpleasant software program? Yes, it is possible to change our programs. This is reality. We have all changed software programs before and just didn't realize it. So where do we begin? Well, the first step to this change, or letting go, is to become aware of our software programs, our learned ways of thinking that are such a part of us that we often are not aware that they are even there. So stop for a minute and think about all of this. How do we become aware of our software programs? Which of our software programs interfere the most with our happiness? Stop for a minute. Think about it. I'm M.L. Laurie. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks to our guests and our contributors, Kristen Thiel, M.L. Laurie, and Kate Lavender. Also, thanks to our creator, Denise Kowalczyk. Visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 19, to find links about today's topics and guests. All feedback, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to tpol at kboo.org. The Politics of Living show is currently looking for contributors and guests. For more information, please email tpol at kboo.org. Thanks for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Vicki Mazzone. We're going to close out with a song by Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul. This is Spirit in the Dark. Dark.